Morning, Christ Church. Those last words, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Words of Jesus uh, are a great frame for our whole message today. Before I get into the message, though, I just want to say a couple of words uh, about kind of where we are in the life of the church. Um, those of you who have been here for more than a few weeks know that I'm going to be stepping down as rector in a couple months. That date is now set as April uh, 21st will be my last Sunday. And um, on that note, you also might have noticed last week, this week, Father Matt is not with us. Father Matt, again, if you haven't been with us for the past, until the past few weeks, you might not know this. Father Matt is our associate rector, and he is going to become the rector after I leave. Um, and so he is uh, taking about a month in between, which is common. The typical way this works would be a search process. It's more common, and somebody comes from another place and has a few weeks to kind of take stock of the moment, prepare their heart and mind, spend a little time with family before they enter into this new kind of big call. And, um, and so the vestry has given him that opportunity under these circumstances, take some time, take a breath. Um, and part of that is after today's service, in fact, I'm going to be getting on a plane with Matt and we're going to go for a few days of retreat at a monastery and uh, spend a few days just praying together, talking together and doing some handoff kinds of conversations. So you could be praying for uh, Father Matt over the next few weeks uh, he'll be coming back in mid-March, and then we'll both be here for about a month of overlap before my last Sunday. I also wanted to comment just about this moment for me. Um, you know, I announced this uh, in October, and a lot of big feelings in that moment. It was a, just kind of the culmination of a long process of discernment, and, um, and then there was a bit of a lull as uh, the past, over the past few months, not a, not a ton of movement in terms of that change, and now we're approaching those final months, and there's a lot of lasts that I'm experiencing or that we're experiencing together, and um, I'm starting to notice the, the feelings uh, from October kind of return and feeling a little bit more nostalgic, um, a little bit more aware of each of you as I look at your faces and as I worship with you, as I hear your voices sing and um, entering into what is a kind of good grief. Um, I say grief in the very best sense because I love you, and I've loved being your, your rector and your pastor. And um, so over the next couple months, we're kind of entering that stretch of some of our final, final times together. Um, and on that note, <clears throat> as we enter that final stretch, and Matt is out for, the next, for these, these several weeks, um, we're taking a pause from the Gospel of Matthew. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We're um, about chapter 10 or 11 at this point, and we're going to pause it for the next four weeks. And I'm going to do a four-week mini-series in the middle of this uh, Matthew study. And we're, I'm going to start today. And um, so you might have noticed the Gospel reading is from John. And each week, the readings will kind of go with the series that we're going to be going through together and this is something that I've been, these four sermons are things that have just kind of been in me the past couple years and what, what the Lord's been doing in me and bringing some of, some of those thoughts together a lot, really two to two and a half years of just some of the things that have been um, percolating in me. And it's, you might call it just a vision for the Christian life. And um, it's not the vision for the Christian life, it's a vision for the Christian life. It's just how God is bringing things together for me lately. And I'm calling it a consecrating life, a consecrating life. I'll talk a little bit more about the word consecrating 
what I mean by that as we get into this. But let's put this up. There's a slide that shows uh, what these four, these four lines are the four sermons today. We are priests, and if you just read down on the left side, that sentence forms the series. We are priests by faith, walking and praying. We are priests by faith, walking and praying. So I'm going to unpack each of those phrases with you over the next four weeks, beginning today with we are priests. This one um, is, gets to the heart of the question of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? A rationalistic culture says, I think, therefore I am. That is kind of a reduction of what it means to be human. A therapeutic culture says, I feel, therefore I am. A performance-oriented culture says, I produce and earn, therefore I am. A digital and virtual reality culture says, I am what I self-create in my posts and my avatars. Yeah. But these are all visions of humanity and what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? We have a much higher calling than any of these options. One of the ways that the Christian scriptures answer this question of what it means to be human is by giving us this image of priesthood. We can see from Genesis to Revelation the human calling to be priests in the world. This is at the core of our identity, a core of our purpose. This is what it means to be human. And you might think, well, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, at the beginning, at the end, and everywhere in between. <laughs> so I'm going to cover a lot of ground today. You might think of today as like, we're going to go into the classroom, roll up your sleeves. Some sermons lean more into inspirations. Others lean more into instruction. Others lean more into challenge or exhortation. Uh, um, think of today as um, going into the classroom with a bit of instruction, which sometimes also kind of spills out into some inspiration for what life can look like. So I'm going to start with a biblical overview of priesthood. There are four major episodes of priesthood in the Bible that uh, we draw. What does it mean to be a priest? If, if, if priesthood is essential to our understanding biblically of what it means to be human. Well, what does it mean to be a priest? We look at these four episodes. We look at Genesis 1 in the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve. We look at the Levites, the Levitical priests, or the descendants of Aaron, and the priesthood who served in the tabernacle and the temple. And then we have Jesus, the great high priest, who shows us what priesthood is about. And then we have the church, and we're called the royal priesthood. And together, these all kind of make up what it means to be a priest. Now, one that you could kind of throw in there for bonus is Melchizedek, um, a little-known priest referenced in the Old Testament, but um, resurfaces in a big way because Jesus is described as being not in the order of the Levite priest, but in the order of the, of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, so these are the major sections, though. So I'm going to go th quickly through this. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the Genesis one because it's maybe a little less obvious to us. But Adam and Eve are the first priests. Adam and Eve are the first priests. Throughout Scripture, the temple is the place where God dwells. It's Whether it's referring to the mobile version of the temple in the tabernacle or the fixed version of uh, the presence of God in the temple in Jerusalem or the embodied version of the temple of God where Jesus dwells in Jesus himself, where he is, refers to himself as the temple or whether it refers to the embodied version 
of God's dwelling place in us, the church. The temple is the place where God dwells. The garden was where God walked and talked with Adam. And this walking and talking, this being with, this dwelling with Adam in the garden temple is the first kind of imagery that we get. God later tells his people when giving instructions on the tabernacle, he says, I will walk among you and be your people. As part of what he describes, his presence among them in the tabernacle and the temple looks like. There are multiple design elements, and we don't have time to go into that today, but multiple design elements of the garden, if you were to break it down and you could kind of see some images of, of the different features and items and design of the garden and compare that to the design and some of the elements and items in lampstands, trees, and so forth, water features, you know, all this in the temple, and you compare that to the garden, you see that the garden is a, a garden temple, and they reflect each other. Adam and Eve are commissioned regarding the garden. And their commission, God says, is to work it and keep it, to work and keep the garden. That was our reading from our first reading today from Genesis. This is their priestly vocation in the garden temple. Now that word pair, work and keep, those two specific words in the Hebrew, they're paired right there in Genesis in the story, to work and keep it. Now those two words are paired elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, and wherever they show up paired, they show up in the context of temple worship and priestly activities, that the priests in the temple were called to work and keep the temple always referring to serving God or keeping guard over the temple, the tabernacle. So we spent a little more time showing priesthood in Adam and Eve in the garden as a temple. But let's go to the next one, the Levites. In the book of Exodus, we get the formation of the priesthood. This is when God commissions the priesthood and ordains the first priest. Aaron, Moses' brother, is the first priest. Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. And God says, Aaron, you're going to be the first priest, and all your descendants are going to be the priests of my, in the tabernacle and, in the, and then in the temple. And so it's the Levite tribe from which the priests come in the life of the tabernacle and temple. So in the book of Exodus, we get the formation of this priesthood and their commissioning. Um, and then in the book of Leviticus, we get the description of their role. Leviticus spells out for us what is the role or what are the responsibilities of a priest, which include especially kind of the offerings, the making offerings and sacrifices, but not just that. They are also commissioned to teach the Torah, which is the scriptures that they had at that time. The ultimate aim of the whole world and the ultimate aim of the the world of the, the priests was simple. God wants to be with his people. That's what it's all about. That's what the temple worship was about. That's what the priesthood was about. God wants to be with his people. And so the priests mediated that. They helped that happen. They facilitated that. They offered up creation to God, and they reflected who God is back to his creation. And they're in this in-between heaven and earth role, helping Make this happen, this vision for humanity and for God in relationship between the two that God wants to be with his people. The next episode is Jesus. We see Jesus in the Gospels. He's fulfilling the call of the priesthood once and for all, facilitating 
nearness to God. At the core of what what he is doing, but also who he is. He himself is the temple and the priest. They converge in him. The book of Hebrews tells us that he's the great high priest. In fact, it's the major theme of Hebrews is what that means. We see him interceding in our gospel reading today, John 17, and what's often called the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 on his way to the cross. Next episode we see is the church. This fourth one now, the church, we're called the royal priesthood. This is our second reading today from the epistle, Peter's epistle. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then later he calls it a royal priesthood. This is not only what it means to be human right now for us. It is that. But this is our eternal calling. And we see this show up again in Revelation. You know how I said, where does this show up? Well, in Genesis and Revelation and everywhere in between. In Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, our our, our role and who we are and what it means to be human shows up again in the book of Revelation, describes it this way, Revelation chapter 1, right at the outset, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests for his God and Father, to him be the glory. So we see that the centrality of this, this calling to be priests, the central biblical description of our human vocation, to be truly human is to be a priest a mediator between heaven and earth, an angled mirror reflecting God to his creation and reflecting creation to its God. But what does that mean? What does that look like practically? So if you go through those four episodes of the priesthood throughout Scripture and you pull kind of like from all of them, Everything that each, each one of them says something about what a priest does, you pull all those together, you could break that down into four things that priests are and do. Four things. This is the fourfold calling of priests. So let's put these up. We've got first consecration, and then communication, communion, and witness. Let me go over these for a second, and then we're going to focus in on consecration for the rest of the sermon as one of those. We don't have time to hit all of them, but I want to go through, speed through the four, and then we're going to land for a bit on consecration. Consecration is the offering up, like we offer up a gift to each other. We offer up our gifts to God. It's an offering with gratitude, an offering with wonder and love. It's this offering up action of our lives, and we'll talk more about What does it actually mean to offer up our lives and this world? Communication, God's word and ours. And this, again, there's that in between heaven and earth, that angled mirror, the reflecting back and forth. We receive God's word and then communicate it to his creation, to all peoples and to all the world. We receive the cries of the world or the praises or the laments of the world, and we offer them back up to the Father as intercession. As priests, we're intercessors of the world. As priests, we speak the words of God to the world and communicate God's word. And ultimately, God's word 
is the living word. It's Jesus himself. So we're not just talking about the words on a page. We're talking about the living word that we represent to the world and communicate to the world. Communion, this is the facilitation of that holiness. Priests, priests you might say, traffic in holiness. <laughs> That's a lot of what you see happening is they're managing this kind of like nearness to God, this proximity to God. It, it can in some cases be too dangerous to enter into the presence of God. And so when and how and who can enter safely into the presence of God and, and then Jesus who comes and and rends that veil and opens it up and says we can all enter right into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. But this communion, as it relates to holiness, we help others grow in wholeness. We help each other heal. We guide and point the way for each other to enter into the Holy of Holies. We're priests to each other and to the world in that way. The very presence of God that refines we point each other there. The very presence of God that renews, we guide each other there. And that's what it means to, to live as priests in the world. Consecration, communication, communion, and then witness. We reflect God to the world. We represent God, reflecting his image and likeness to the world. Now, this is a fundamental calling of the church. One of the most consistent judgments of his people, of God's judgments against his people throughout the Bible is their failure to do this. His people, including the church today, too often takes on the image and likeness of the world and reflects that back to God. That's his greatest judgment against Israel. You see in the, throughout the prophets, through Jesus and his voice and actions, and we see it also as a danger and a reality today. And so part of our calling is as priests to reflect who God is to the world, as distinct from the world, not taking on the ways and attitudes and postures and angers and all of, of the world, but taking on the image and likeness of Jesus and reflecting that to the world. So let's circle back. Now, I said I would camp out the rest of the sermon on consecration, so we're going to go there now. Consecration, um, let me talk about what that means. Again, the act of consecration is an offering up. Sometimes you'll see in, uh, you maybe you've heard this word, or if you read through some like Leviticus numbers, I know you were just reading it this morning, you probably saw this word, oblation. The word oblation, it's one of those technical words, but uh, a word that's easier to kind of get hold of is consecration. It's this, it's, it really refers to this offering up action, this lifting up. Lifting up what? Lifting up people, places, things, time, ourselves to God. Adam and Eve, in, in the offering up, we, we see in creation, they're offering up creation as they tend the garden, as they name the animals. There's something personal about that. Talk to anybody who's ever worked on a farm, and if they had to send a cow or a sheep or something to slaughter, it's a lot easier to send the ones that don't have a name than the ones that you've named. There's something about naming, naming creation, naming each other, offering up. So people, places, things, time, ourselves, 
I want to go through each of these people. First of all, what does it mean to offer each other up? Now, don't confuse this word of offering or this consecration, this offering up as, as sacrifice, as if it simply means something is killed. In fact, most often that's not what it's referring to. It's, there's a thank offering. There's a God, you are good, and a bringing of a, a grain offering. And then that people would then share and enjoy in a feast. These offerings, and even the sacrifices that were some of the, the, the animal sacrifices, that there would, it would culminate in, in feast and being consumed in pleasure and joy. But this offering up is, is, not, is, is tied to really the honoring, the seeing the, the value of something and beholding it and saying, this is beautiful and this is good. This is filled with the life of God. And this is a gift from God that's been given. And I'm giving this gift, returning this gift back to God, this good gift, this beautiful thing. I behold it with wonder and amazement and gratitude. And I offer this from my heart back up to God. So when we do that with each other, what does that look like? It looks like treating each other in a very personal, loving way. There's a philosopher named Martin Buber that coined the phrase that I-thou relationship as opposed to I-it in human relations. Now, the moment I say that, I-thou versus I-it, I think you instinctively know what I mean. You have felt like you were itted before, and you have felt like you were thoued before. And you've done the same to other people. All of us have, both. But that vowing of each other, beholding the mystery of each other, the beauty and the wonder of every individual, and seeing them for who they really are in their worth and their value before God, made in his image. When we do that, we are consecrating them. We are offering them up before God. Naming each other, saying you are, you are courageous, you are kind, you are a community builder, you are good with your hands. Naming vocation, naming identity is a way of vowing each other, of, of consecrating each other. Jesus was the perfect example of making oblation of people. He laid down his life for them. The ultimate vowing moment. He laid down his life for the whole world, consecrating it all. Jesus' greatest commandment was to love God and our neighbor, whether it's in the most intimate context, our neighbor might be our spouse, or the most distant context and the person who is most other than we are, and perhaps even our enemy. Jesus demonstrated what it means to thou unto even our enemies, to truly see another human being, to make their concern our concern, to encourage them, to comfort them, to correct them, to listen to them, to affirm them, to serve them, to be with them, and to be for them as another human being. This is our greatest act of consecration. People, places, we make oblation or we, we consecrate place. How do we consecrate place as priests, as part of what it means to be human in this world? How do we consecrate place? We do that, for example, through creation care. 
We do that also mindful of the built environment around us, thinking, how do we design cities that help humans flourish and avoid waste? What about land use policies? And so anywhere from legislature to city planners to our own backyards and our neighborhoods, we can be part of this act of consecrating place. Throughout Scripture, creation is not merely a backdrop or a stage and a set on which plays the drama between God and his people. The, the images or motifs of land and water, of the heavens and the earth, flora and fauna, they all create, carry this great theological significance throughout the scriptures with all creation involved in the drama of redemption. Adam and Eve charged from the very beginning with care and cultivation of the garden. The priests were to teach the law to the Israelites that related to the rhythms of the land and restoring the land. So we see, that we see this worked into the call of priesthood as well. This consecration of creation extending in every direction. One great example that uh, you are probably familiar with, Jeremiah 29, where uh, they are in, the Israelites are in exile and they are called to seek the flourishing of this new city that they're in, seek the welfare of the city. And this is not even their homeland, home city. They're strangers in this place. And he's saying, even there, not just in your own place, but even there, seek the flourishing of the place where you live. So from Adam and Eve's call to placemaking in the garden to all God's people in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth were called to invest with care, with love in the particular places, land where we live, with a commitment to the flourishing of the wild places, the built places, the particular neighborhoods that we inhabit. So we have people, places, things. Let's talk a little bit about things. What does it mean to consecrate things? This gets, into, uh, gets us into the realm of like, what does it mean to be human in relation to matter, the world of things? And it gets us into the conversation about art, imagination, creativity, vocation, culture making, work. This is all dealing with the world of things things of the material world that we've been set in. To live a consecrating life is to create complex things out of simple things. To build systems, to build institutions is to consecrate things. To learn a language as humans created languages is to create a whole system of meaning out of Phonetics is sounds that come out of the mouth. There's, there's culture-making in that act. This touches in, again to Adam and Eve's call in the garden temple, garden temple to work it and keep it. If you think about the word culture, you think about the word cultivation, uh, and how those go together. It's taking the world of things and making something of it. Cultural artifacts. Anything humans have made is a cultural artifact. Whether that's stone and mortar back, you know, millennia ago. Or an origami goose that you just learned how to make. Or code that you just wrote this past week in software development. Or 
building the program of the Longhorns football team or whatever it might be that you spend your time on with the things of this world, you are cultivating creation. You are working in the world of of things God created and bringing them together. And as you do that, you are consecrating the world of things. Time. What does it mean to consecrate time? Well, the clearest example is in a commandment that says, keep the Sabbath holy. It's a way of consecrating time. Taking moments in your day, taking a day of your week, taking a couple of weeks of your year, and just setting time apart to to attend to the presence of God in your life, to rest in his presence, to recreate in recreation uh, your mind, heart, soul, body. This is all what it means to consecrate time, each moment sacred, treating every day and every minute like the sacrament of the present moment that it is. People place things, time, and then ourselves. Romans 12.1 says this, talking about all of who we are, all of who we are is offered up. The beautiful and the broken is all consecrated before God, even our pain. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer, here's consecration language, here's priestly language, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we live this consecrating life, we're participating in the life of Christ. He offered up people. He offered up places. He offered up things. He offered up time. And he ultimately offered up himself, a living sacrifice. Our offering is joined to him and his. When we suffer, we're participating in the suffering of Christ. We are crucified with Christ When we experience new life, new mercies, new awareness of the power and presence of God in our lives, we are resurrected with Christ. We're crucified with him. We are risen with him. He is in us. We are in him. We offer ourselves up, consecrating our lives as they're joined to his life. As this brings us to the great image and act and moment of worship in our service each week, which is this table right here, and what happens here, the Eucharist. The Eucharist means literally the great thanksgiving. This offering, a thank offering is what's happening at the table. And it begins, if you notice kind of the the shape of the liturgy and the sequence of it, is the offering happens right before that. And someone brings up the basket to the priest behind the table, and the priest, what does the priest do with that basket? consecrates it, offers it up. Now, let's take that a step further. It's the gathering of your financial gifts towards God's purposes through his church. That's what you're doing. But that offering, your offering, represents your consecration of people, places, times, and things. You have spent hours of your labor, heart, mind, and soul, body, in whatever it takes to earn that currency, to earn that that living. And that word living is a great way to think about it, what it means. Our work is a consecration of our whole lives. And so you're bringing 
your blood, sweat, tears, your heart, mind, body, and soul. You're bringing yourself and you bring, and that's being offered up to God and his purposes. It's a microcosm of your everyday life. And then what do we do next? We take the bread and the wine, which are simple things. It's grapes, things, wheat, things, cultivated by humans, made into something more complex than the simple ingredients that the act of culture making, turning them into bread and, and into wine. And then we gather those at the table and we say, this belongs to you. This cultivation of your creation belongs to you. It's made by, these are artifacts that are made by farmer priests, baker priests, vintner priests, offered up in the creation of their work. And then the ordained priest behind the table holds that up, representing all of you and all the work that you do in all of our lives. And we hold it up before God and we say, God, would you inhabit, would you inhabit this, this bread and this wine? And would you inhabit our lives that we might be fed by you and that we might then go out and the rest of our lives be consecrated again to you, and we make, have this rhythm of going out into our lives and coming back here, but it's all a consecrating life. I'm going to share with you an extended quote by um, a scholar named Dr. Peter Lightheart. He's a theologian, author, and um, he, he has this whole short sketch. I don't think it's published anywhere in any of his books, but uh, in article form called A Eucharistic Theory of Culture. Now, <clears throat> follow me here. Not only on the Lord's Day, but every day, we offer our works to God in worship, specifically with an act of thanksgiving. When we bring bread and wine, and by implication, everything we make and do before the Lord, we do it with thanksgiving. This is remarkable. After all, we make the bread and wine, and yet we thank God for them. We thank Him for the products of our hands, because even the things we make, even our works, are his gift to us. And having given thanks at the table, we are trained to live lives of continuous Eucharist. Now just sit on that for a second. Continual thanksgiving. Giving thanks, as Paul says, for all things at all times. We bring what we have made to God, but he doesn't take it from us. We bring what we have to God, and he shares it with us. And so the things we make become means of communion with God. The Eucharist is the way the world ought to be. Raw creation cultivated to grain and grapes. Cultivated creation brought to its fulfillment by cooking. Cooked creation enjoyed in the presence of God. Cooked creation enjoyed together by a community of worshipers. Cooked creation given in praise and received with thanksgiving. The final end of all things is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the Lord's Supper, we anticipate that final feast, the feast that is the culmination of all creation. What does it mean? What does it mean to be human? means to speak and embody the heart of God to the world, to voice creation's praise and laments back to God, standing here between heaven and earth, heaven and earth, to become holy and 
whole as we live in the presence of the holy God. That's what it means to be human. It means to reflect the goodness of God to the world. And it means to behold this world in wonder and gratitude and offer it up to God, every person, every place, everything, every moment, all of ourselves, an offering unto God. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to live this life, a consecrated and consecrating life. Lord, protect us from false stories of what it means to be human and help us to live as your priest to the world, the royal priesthood. Lord, we say thank you. May our lives be a constant Eucharist. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.